following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. The Mueller family had three children, Mark, Wendy, and Chris, in that order. And we have some incredible events that we still all remember and laugh about. One of them was created when I was about three or four, my brother was about seven or eight, and we had received from our parents the world's largest box of crayons. And with this huge box of color came some big instructions, and the big one, the number one instruction was, do not write on the walls. That was a a real big one. Well, of course, this was too great a temptation for my super genius older brother, And so he came up with another devious plan, and during this season, he was a genius at somehow getting in trouble and making sure that his younger brother and sister got the blame. And he took his favorite crayon, and then he went into the fireplace and wrote on one of the bricks the word Chris, spelled out my name. My name, of course, meant that I would get the blame. And as usual, once it was discovered that that had occurred, we were lined up, one, two, three, as the parents began to uh, examine us, asking us, who wrote on the wall in the fireplace? Well, I was three to four, somewhere in that age category, and I was the one that typically was always getting in trouble. I deserved to get in trouble. I was kind of that kind of kid. And, but interesting, as soon as they said that, I began to do the only thing that I knew what to do, which is to cry. So, which then all of a sudden I realized as I'm crying, I realized and came to the obvious conclusion that now that's like admitting my guilt. It's tantamount to a confession. And so then I'm even crying further. And then I looked up at my dad and he had a smirk on his face. And I'm like, I don't understand this smirk. So he made that clear in just a moment as they asked us, who was responsible for doing this. No one stepped forward. I'm weeping, of course, the guilty one. And ultimately, what I figured out is that dad and mom already knew who had written on the inside brick of the fireplace the word Chris. And he knew it because, simply stated, Wendy and I, at that time, could not write. So therefore, (laughs) my brother had really blown it. And basically, they were trying to smoke him out and get him to basically admit that he was the great manipulator that he was. Interesting enough, now 50 years later, we're on a family reunion about five years ago, and my brother comes up with t-shirts, they all have a brick on them, and on the brick is Chris did it. And uh, we're celebrating the fact uh, of this, and he's for the first time openly, 50 years later, admitting his sin. Can you believe that? Unbelievable. Amazingly, I share that illustration with you because it's a perfect illustration of our passage today in that we as Christians have a really hard time admitting our sin. Do we not? It's really tough. And interesting enough, James is going to take us to that point right now. He's going to open up our understanding of the importance of acknowledging and admitting our sin. No matter if it's You know, a temper, a lie, a bad attitude, driving reckless, secret lust, longing for something, thinking poorly of another. We have that difficult time. We love as Christians and as non-Christians to blame others. We have a society now that likes to destroy others through this process. And therefore, some people make it their distinguishing attribute. They 
basically make everyone else responsible, and they are the perpetual victim. So understand, in the church, it's even leaked its way into our thinking and understanding because typically in the church, fellowship is struggling. Uh, Typically in the church, discipleship rarely happens. Typically in the church, not only those two elements, but also ministry because blamers make it really hard to get along with other people. It's hard to get along when it's always somebody else's fault. And so understand The blame game is something that's part of our DNA. And the very first sin that occurred in humanity in Genesis chapter 3, what did Adam say? He said to God, the woman you gave me. Okay, he blamed God. And then when he asked Eve, the Lord, uh, Eve responded with, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So Eve blamed Satan, but Adam, worst of all, blamed who? Blamed God. So the half-brother of our Lord and the author of this book that we're studying, if you're new with this, basically is very forthright. He has no patience with this foolish fatalism when he would run into a poor man who blames his poverty for turning him into a thief so he can justify his stealing. James would say, no, you're guilty. You did it. You're the sinner. And when he says, well, God was at fault for making me poor, James will say, no, you're a thief. You're a thief. You're responsible for your sin. When the drunk blames domestic struggles or business pressure or business failures for his drinking that results in drunk driving, crashing a car, or maybe even hurting someone personally, he may blame God for his current marital struggles and his financial woes, but James would confront him and say, you're a drunk. You're a drunk. It is your fault. It is not your marriage. It's not your job. You are responsible, Christian, for your anger. You are responsible for the words that you speak to your spouse or your children. You are responsible how you spend the Lord's money or how you invest the Lord's time. You are responsible for that sin of lust that's either before a phone or before a computer. God does not allow any excuse, any justification, any rationalization over sin God does not allow for anyone to excuse themselves with the devil made me do it. Understand a thousand times no, all Christians accept responsibility for their sin. All Christians accept responsibility for their sin. Sin separates you from God. Understand in eternity if you're not a Christian and then with relational intimacy if you're in Christ. But it does a separating us. This is basic Christianity 101. You must accept the responsibility for your sin to become a Christian or you're not a Christian. In fact, you must publicly admit your sin. Part of the public confession before men is that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. True. Paul himself said, Oh, wretched man that I am. This is after he's the great apostle already establishing churches. He calls himself in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. And at the end of his life, toward the end of it, he actually says, present tense, ongoing, I am continually the chief of sinners. That's the great apostle Paul. We are to be people who admit our sin and are responsible for our sin. Get used to it. You're responsible. And this is where James takes us next in chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. We're trying to draw out every truth that's here. So if you're not there already in your Bibles, toward the end of your New Testament, go to the book of James, chapter 1. 
We're going to get only halfway through this passage today, but I want to tell you up front, you've got to be here next week because both today and next week will rock your world. Absolutely rock your world. There are things here I've never seen in James, and they are so massively encouraging. Now, you remember what's happening. James is talking to scattered Jews who have been persecuted. They're suffering. They're around the New Testament world. What it made it really difficult was this. They're Jews. They're the, the nation of Israel. They're supposed to be cared for by their father. And now these Jews that he's writing are born-again Christians. Okay, so they're now right with God. They don't have the wrath of God uh, laying over them. Uh, they have now been freed, and they're in Christ. And yet they're looking at themselves saying, wait a minute, how come the father's making it so hard? How come he's not taking care of us? And some of them began to blame God for their troubles and their woes and their temptations. So this is where we find ourselves now in verse 13, 14, and 15. And I want you to read these three verses out loud, would you please? 13, 14, and 15, then stop there and I'll read the rest of the passage. Here we go, everyone together, from your outline, if you would. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now stop there and listen the rest of the way. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. James clearly states, and the point of this paragraph is that genuine Christians accept responsibility for their sin. That's the point. Believers understand it is their own heart which gives birth to sin and not their outward circumstances, not their trials, and definitely not other people. They're not responsible. They embrace their own nature as the problem. The problem is in you. Your struggle in giving into temptation is not the tempter without, it is the traitor within. Do you get that? Write that down. It is not the devil made me do it on the outside. It is you, the traitor within. It is foolish to blame God. He's not only the giver of all good gifts, verse 17, but he's also the one who transformed you in the first place, verse 18. He freed you from being a slave of sin to be a slave of righteousness. He freed you up. You need these verses, just as I do this morning, in order to win the battles against temptation. These will help you with your battles. Pay attention. You need this text to stop blaming your circumstances and people for what's going on in your life. You need to understand this paragraph to see how deception, and especially self-deception, actually works in your life. And you need the scripture here to worship the Lord in a whole new way with a greater understanding of who he really is in his holiness and much more. In fact, would you do this for me? These verses will actually come alive today if you would allow the Spirit of God to bring a sin to mind. Okay, the one that the Spirit of God does. Not, not somebody that your wife leans over and go, hey, work on this one, buddy. All right? But the one that the Spirit of God brings to mind in your heart and then filter that sin through this passage. 
filter that struggle through this passage. It could be fear. It could be anger. It could be indifference. It could be a prayerlessness. It could be excusing responsibility or lack of discipline. Whatever. It doesn't matter. And by the way, everybody in your row is going to be different. Everyone. Every single person here, that's the incredible vastness of God's character, is it not? He's going to bring these things to mind, but allow these verses to assist you in crushing that sin and actually becoming more like Jesus Christ. That process. It's not going to do it one time, but you can begin that process of seeing that happen. So this passage is going to bring three major points, comes right out of the text. We're going to look at two of them today. Point number one in your outline, don't blame God for your own sin. Don't blame God for your own sin. In verse 13, after this lengthy discussion of trials, again, we've already said this, James is now reminding his readers and you today to not blame your sin on anyone, anything but themselves. And most of all, don't blame God. So look at verse 13. Look at what he says. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now when he says when he is tempted, that word tempted is the same word that James used to describe trials. And as we went through those verses, we showed you and told you that that verse, that, that Greek word there, trial or tempted, is defined by its context. And if you look at verses 13 through 18, you'll see that he's talking about temptation here, the allurement to evil. And so he's saying here that basically this, when he is tempted, is that pressure to basically be tempted towards evil. And he lists temptation after trials. And the point of that is this. Every time you get a trial or a pressure against you, it basically goes one of two ways. If you respond well with the Word of God and you make your dependence upon the Spirit of God, it's going to cause you to grow and be mature. That was chapter, verses 1 through 12. But if you don't trust the Lord, you blame Him, or you accuse Him of something, or you're basically doubting Him and disobeying His Word, then it becomes a solicitation to evil. It becomes a temptation. So those same things in your life can become temptations. And the emphasis that James is making here is that God is not the tempter. God is not at fault. God is not at fault for your sin. He is sovereign, but He is not responsible for your evil. When you sin, you choose to sin. James really gets tough now when he starts verse 13. Take a look at it. He says, let no one say. That's a continual command of every believer here. Never say this. Basically, he's saying stop the blame game. One of the things that, you know, I want to say graciously is that this, perpetual victims are really not welcome here unless they repent. Because perpetual victimhood will make you difficult before the Lord and make you impossible before one another. It, it actually destroys your relationship with the Lord if you have one and destroys your relationship with one another. You cannot be the one who's blaming everyone else for what happens to you and your own sinfulness. That thinking ruins your relationship with Christ and destroys your church family. No human being who exists is not responsible for their own sin. Every single one is responsible. No human exists who is not partly responsible for any conflict, any trial, any relationship tension, 
we all contribute sinfully, even if it's a minor way, and marriage taught us that, did it not? Okay, I didn't hear any amens, so that's, uh, that's scary. Imagine what it would be like. Yeah, let's say you're going to take a drive over here to the west, and you're standing up in the hills above our particular valley, and you're looking at our value, and you're standing up there, and all of a sudden, a flood comes through, a fire comes through, an earthquake comes through, or an army comes through and wipes out everybody. Everybody dies, every single one of them. Every building's burned down, and everybody who doesn't flee is totally wiped out. Now, there's a couple things that might go on in your mind. You might be going, God, what are you doing? And then, basically, that would expose one thing in your life that you don't realize that God is judging this planet. That God is just in judging this planet, and right now, right now, we are under God's judgment. Right now. That's why gathering together is so important. It's gathering together to encourage each other, to worship our Lord, to get the right perspective, because we are past Romans 1, the first step, past Romans 1, the second step, past Romans 1, the third step. We are under the judgment of God as a culture. So the first thing you got to think about is that this is deserved. The second thing you got to realize is that do we have an excuse to blame God? Because when that happened and the prophet Jeremiah oversaw all of Jerusalem and they were all wiped out, everyone who didn't flee was killed and every building was leveled, listen to what Jeremiah says in Lamentations chapter 3. It's there in your outline. He says this, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his what? We have no right to complain because we're sinful. And that's a life verse for me. God gives good gifts, verse 17. God gave you salvation, verse 18. No matter what happens, I have no justification to complain over the horrible circumstances or even my sin struggles and never to blame him. Never. Let no one say, verse 13, the idea is let no person say to himself, that is to rationalize to himself, that when he is tempted, he is being tempted by God. That very thought is anathema to the Lord's half-brother, to James, the Spirit of God. Do you see that phrase, tempted by God? Circle that word, by. He uses a preposition, and we know that every word in the original autographer is inspired by God. Yes, Amen. So even the by there is, and that by communicates remoteness or indirectness or distance. And what he's saying there is this. No one should say that God is even indirectly or remotely responsible for temptation to evil. That's what he's saying. The Lord is in no way, in no degree, responsible directly or indirectly for your temptations to evil. Yes, your Father allows them to continue, but every believer has a choice to sin or to escape, for God promises that nothing will come to you that you cannot handle. And you know this is true, so read aloud with me that verse in your outline, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Let's read it together. Everyone together. Here we go. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. I like the way some of my Greek manuscripts actually translate temptations. You could write it in your Bible. It means, just like it is trials, being pressured. This time, being pressured to give in to evil, to sin. And listen, being pressured to sin is not a rare event. Can I hear an amen to that? It's not a rare event. It's common to mankind. No person, even the most godly Christian in this room 
can escape temptation. Every single believer for the rest of your life until heaven will be tempted. Even our perfect Lord Jesus Christ, the great God of glory, who is without sin and without sinful flesh, was in his humanity tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4. He was tempted. Sadly, as one ancient writer quipped, your Christian baptism doesn't drown your flesh. You know what I mean? It doesn't. But Martin Luther reminds us, what's he say? You cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Don't you love that? He's saying, look, you can't stop the temptations from flying through. They're going to come. Those solicitations to evil are going to come, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair, building something, bringing you to sin. You can't stop the thought, but you can stop the sin. Does that make sense? Understand, I like that focus, and that's Martin Luther's wonderful way of stating it. You don't have to give in to the temptation pressure. God is faithful and will provide a way of escape. And as a believer, you do not have to sin, Romans chapter 6. But whatever you do, do not blame God. Verse 13 continues and finishes with, For God cannot be tempted by evil, verse 13, and he himself does not tempt anyone. When it says God cannot be tempted by evil, he's saying God, by his holy nature, has no capacity for evil. Any vulnerability to evil. Your God is untemptable. He is invincible to the assaults of evil. In other words, John MacArthur writes it this way, quote, The nature of evil makes it inherently foreign to the nature of God. The two are mutually exclusive. The gulf between them is infinite. Our God has no vulnerability to evil and is utterly unassailable to its onslaughts. Our Lord is aware of evil, but he is and always will be untouched by it, just like a sunbeam shining on a dump is untouched by the trash. Your God is holy, end quote, right? In fact, on Sinai, Leviticus 19, you know what the Lord called Moses. He said, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am what? Holy. God repeats that command to you in 1 Peter 1.16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Even our eternal worship in the future. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holy occurs 200 times in the Bible. It means, and write this down, set apart for something special. Set apart for something unique. God is holy in that he sets himself apart from humanity and that holiness is eternally unmixed by anything less than pure. So much so that the prophet Habakkuk emphasizes the Lord has no vulnerability to evil when he says in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve of evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Even our Lord Jesus Christ, God who ministered in our midst in a body in Hebrews chapter 7 it says and describes him as holy innocent undefiled separate from sinners that's our Lord Jesus Christ holy innocent undefiled separate from sinners this is why verse 13 concludes with take a look at verse 13 and he himself does not tempt anyone God purposes trials to occur, and in them he allows temptation to happen, but he promises not to allow any more than believers can endure, and never without a way of escape. Never. 
Each of us, each time, choose whether to take the escape God provides or to give in. Every single time. We need to stop excusing our sin. It's our responsibility. And that's why James gets really pointed in verse 14 and 15. And point number two in your outline, he says, accept responsibility for your own sin. Accept responsibility for your own sin. Verses 14 and 15 said, don't blame God, don't blame people, don't blame circumstances, don't blame your background, don't blame the devil. Why? Because sin is your fault, your responsibility, your choice. Now, what are you going to see in 14 and 15? You're going to see no one is immune to temptation. You're going to see your sin has a three-step process that I want you to understand today. Your sins that you battle with are different than the sins of the person next to you and everybody else in this room. They're always varying degrees, but always unique and different. That sinning starts with the emotions and then to the mind and then to the will and that you're going to be thinking, if you're thinking that you're above the danger of temptation or not responsible to battle, then that's a deadly decision. Look what he says in 14 and 15. He says this, but each one is tempted when he or she is carried away and enticed by his or her own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth what? Death. So notice that first phrase there. Each one, talking about the universality of temptation, for which no person is immune. Every human being, young and old, in this room is tempted. There are no exceptions. One more time. Godliness does not prevent temptation. It does not. Each one, he says, look what he says, is tempted. You can circle that word is, that's present tense, ongoing, underscoring the fact that it's repeatable, it's inescapable, it goes on all the time when you least expect it, when you think that things are the greatest, that's when you're tempted. Temptation will attack you anytime, anywhere, because you carry the fuel within you. So, now is temptation itself a sin? Uh, makes you, write this down, temptation itself is not a sin. It's not a sin. It is the allurement to sin. It is the pressure to sin. The Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless Savior, was tempted. So therefore, in fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the one who has been tempted in how many things? All things, as we are yet without sin. How many sins? All. And when it does a temptation become sin, what is the process? Well, James tells us in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, if you've never hunted, maybe you've fished. So both imageries are found in these words, carried away and enticed. Carried away has the idea of baiting a trap and drawing in an animal. Drawing in an animal so that it can be captured. And that's the imagery of temptation, is to draw you in so you can be captured. The idea of enticement has the idea of, you know, to me, no attraction. Worm on a hook has absolutely no, it doesn't make me drool, doesn't make me want anything. But for a fish, it's filet mignon, okay? So the worm on the hook is an enticement to draw it, to draw it out of its deep pool, to come and grab that hook and basically then be drawn in. And that's the process that James is describing here. The animal trap and the fishing line within the context of the water. And basically it meant in the early Greek language to entice by pleasure. 
Now that word entice is actually used only three times in the New Testament. Once here in James, as he's describing sin and the lurement of temptation. And then twice he describes and uses it to describe the false teacher. When we studied 2 Peter chapter 3, let me give you a couple of quotes here. He describes the false teachers as full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, drawing them towards sin, having heart trained in greed. And then later he says, arrogant words of vanity by which they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. So you're saying, Chris, okay, I get it. This is dangerous. It's a trap. It's like a worm on a hook for a fish. So what draws me in? What is it that lures me into temptation? What would cause me as a person to go into the temptation trap? What's the bait? Look at verse 14 very carefully. Circle it, if you would. It says, by his own what? Lust. By his own lust. That phrase. Lust is that older Greek word, craving. And lust is your own, write it down, strong emotional desires. Strong emotional desires. Now, in the English language, lust is almost exclusively used for sexual immorality. But in the Greek language, lust was used as strong emotion, strong desire. Sometimes in the New Testament, it's actually a positive desire, like desiring to be an elder. It's used that way, epithemia. But here, he's talking about being a negative draw towards temptation, and it's what lures you in. It's what leads you closer to sin, lust, that strong emotional desire. So step number one in the temptation process, you've got to get this down, is strong desire. Strong de That's where it starts. That's where it starts, strong desire. Animals are successfully lured into traps because the bait is too attractive for them to resist, Right? It smells good. Now, to us, it's stinky, it's horrible, but to, you know, a coon or a beaver or whatever, it smells good, it appeals to their senses, their desire for the bait becomes so intense it causes them to lose their normal caution, to overlook the danger, ignore the trap until it's too late. It captures them. And you and I succumb to temptation in exactly the same way. When our lust, our strong desires kind of captivate us, they draw us toward evil things that are appealing to our fleshly desires. And although today, again, it's used as illicit sexual desire, this is a strong desire, a longing for any kind. And did you notice God says, verse 14, his own lust. Did you see the word own? His own lust, telling us that temptations will be different for each one of us. One person's passion is another person's repulsion. Right? Not everybody's tempted in the same way. Each of us battle with temptation differently. I have never once in my entire life struggled with homosexuality. But there are people who do. And it's a big deal. It's a very big deal to them. And each one of us battle with lust. We all battle with our own strong emotional desires. In other words, given the right circumstances, anybody can commit any sin. Sin can look attractive. Have you noticed? Sin can be look pleasurable, and it often is, at least for a while, until we realize the consequences. Otherwise, it would have no power over us, right? It has an attractive to us. John MacArthur adds this thought, there would be no attraction of sin if it were not for man's own sinful lust. There are strong desires which make evil seem more appealing than righteousness. 
falsehood more appealing than the truth, immorality more appealing than purity, and the things of this world more appealing than the things of God. It does that. You cannot blame Satan. Don't blame his demons. Don't blame ungodly people, fleshly Christians, background, economics, health, for your strong desires. And most certainly, you must not blame God, James says. Again, the problem is not the tempter without, but it is the traitor within. So step number one is strong desire. The desire to be satisfied by acquiring something. It starts emotionally. It's very subtle. Listen, hey, you've got a need. Somebody hurt you. Uh, They were unfair. This looks really good. This looks pleasurable. I I feel so tired. And by the way, write this down, would you? H-A-L-T-S. Would you write it down? H-A-L-T-S. Halt. Go ahead, write it down. It stands for something. When are you most temptable? Are you ready? When you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely, when you're tired, and when you're stressed. Halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed. You're hungry, angry, lonely. You got, you got all of them working for you. You coming home, you're hungry, you're angry, you're lonely, you're tired, you're stressed. And all of a sudden you're like, man, you're going to face temptation. And in that particular time, something else is going to offer itself, an escape, something to make you feel better. So what's the next step? The next step, are you ready? Okay, stay with me. This is the key. This is the key to beating temptation is the next step. Driven by your strong emotions, now mentally, you've got to make a decision. You are, verse 14, enticed. You're carried away by, number two in your outline, step number two, the deception of the mind. The deception of the mind. The temptation process next affects your mind through deception. You, you rationalize your right to possess what you emotionally desire. What you feel becomes what you think, which eventually leads to what you will or your action, unless, are you ready? Write it down. You stop it in the mind. This is the key. You got to stop it in the mind. What you feel becomes what you think, it leads to your will, but you got to stop it, and the key is what you're thinking. You can't stop the emotions. They're going to fly through. Remember Martin Luther? They're going to fly over. You're going to have those thoughts. The question is, you've got to direct your thinking. You can say no. The Spirit of God, recalling the Word of God in your mind, empowering you to say no. Dependent obedience, but it can't happen. And after the emotions kick in, then the thoughts begin to dwell. The, the battle travels from the heart to the mind, finally to the will, but it must be stopped Where? In the mind. Say it. Where? In the mind. Like rejecting those false religious systems of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. That is the verse you must know about the mind. You can dwell on what is true, or you can succumb to what is false. You can dwell in what is pure, or you can succumb to what is lust. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Let your mind focus, concentrate on these things, not those things. Even when you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and stressed. To beat temptation, write it down. Listen, to beat temptation, you got to get serious about your mind. That's the battle. Now, I don't know about you, but I love science, and science has brought me today to an incredible, incredible 
gift. Because what I have here is not a mic cord. This is 100 foot long, goes to a box in the back, all set up with a computer system. All you have to do is grab onto this cord, grab onto it, and we're going to get to see everything you're thinking right now. And I can calibrate it so I can show everyone on these screens what you're thinking all day and what you thought about all week long. Isn't that awesome? So, Jesus, are you ready to grab the cord? No. No. Terrell, how about you? Nikolai, would you grab the cord? Come on, you're not? Not going to do it? You might do it for fun because you're a gamer, right? Yeah, but, you know, the reason I share that with you is this. That's the battle. That's the battle. You have got to go after that stuff that you would not want anyone to know. You've got to fight the battle of temptation and sin right here. That's where it starts, and that's where it needs to go. You don't need the thoughtometer to do that. You can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, beware of allowing those fantasies in your mind. Fantasies of greatness, fantasies of passion. Beware of building up those fantasies. Beware of thinking you deserve something when you know you don't under God's grace. Beware of taking, guys, that second long look. You glance, you appreciate, don't take the second long look. Understand, beware of thinking that desires and longings wants, these are needs in my life. When James 1.16, look at James 1.16, a verse we're going to look at next week. Do not be what? Deceived. Don't be deceived. What happens if I feel it in my heart, I think it in my head, and then I choose wrongly? Step number three in your outline is disobedience. Disobedience. Verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Once it's conceived, the will is in gear, then your thoughts will give birth to sin. Strong emotion, your lust will draw you in, then you make a decision. It's a willful choice. It's a mental determination. It's a personal selection. You pick passion over principle. In verse 15, when lust has conceived, he's saying it's like it gave birth. Uh, your, your will yields to the strong emotional lust and then the conception of sin takes place. James is telling you sin is not merely just a, a momentary moment decision. It is actually a process in you. Sin is a process. And Greek words there for have conceived and bring forth liken the sin process to the physical conception and birth. And James is personifying temptation, saying it's a process, showing it's alive and it's action in your life. Listen. When a Christian commits adultery, there were a lot of little sins that led off and led up to that one big sin. It didn't just happen. There was a lot that went on. When, when someone displays a heart of anger, there has been a lot going on in that heart to finally express that kind of sin. When someone lives in fear, there are major issues in understanding the character of God and also little choices made along the way to see themselves and to become that fearful person. None of these things happen in isolation. They're a process. And sin is that process. It starts with emotional lust temptation. 
Then it goes to mental deception. And it finally issues forth in disobedience. Verse 15. He says, conceived. He's saying it was brought forth from the desire to the deception to the disobedience. And when you lose that internal mental battle in the mind over those strong emotions, then the lusts are fulfilled. Sin is produced. And he says in verse 15, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth what? The wages of sin is what? Listen, no matter how you look at it, no matter how you swing the bat, sin brings forth death. Sin will kill you for all eternity. You will be under eternal death for all eternity unless you turn to Christ. But if you're in Christ, then your eternal punishment for sin killed Christ in your place. But sin always brought about death. Sin always brings forth death. And even though sin does not result in spiritual death for the believer... 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 John 5 teach you that your sin, Christian, listen, your sin can bring about physical death. James wants you to know the seriousness of ongoing sin. It brings forth death. And look ahead, if you would, at verses 16, 17, and 18 that we're going to look at next week. James wants you to know that even though you're beloved, verse 16, God always is good and the giver of all good gifts, verse 17. And God is the one who transformed you, transformed you, caused you to be born again so you wouldn't have to live in sin, verse 18. Even though all that sin is hateful because sin brings forth death. So take this home, would you please? Letter A in your outline, get serious about sin. Get serious about sin. You you need the means of grace. You say, Chris, what are you talking about? I'm so glad you asked that question. You need the means of grace to do battle and stop temptation before its birth. You need spiritual leaders. That's a means of grace. In your life, a small group leader, a discipleship leader. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Listen, have you been unruly ever? Have you been faint-hearted? Have you been weak? Can I hear an amen to that? Then you need spiritual leaders in your life. People who are going to encourage you. Sometimes you're that spiritual leader and you'll encourage others, but they're going to encourage you as well. You need to study, listen, read, memorize, and write this down, obey God's powerful sword. You need His Word. Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to his word. And keeping it means obey it. Not just learn it, not just listen to a sermon, but obey. You need to be at church with God's people. You need to be discipled by a group of men or women. You need to be honest and transparent about your sinful struggles, and you need to be about the process. You can't do this in your own strength, but dependent upon the Spirit of God, you need to flee youthful lust, and you need to pursue righteousness, faith, love, hope, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. You say, Chris, why'd you bring that up? I'm so glad you asked. Hey, look up here. Look down here. Sorry. <laughs> Sometimes you're putting to death those sins in your life, and you're constantly trying to put that fire out. You're constantly trying to deal with this evil thing. When God is saying to you, look, it's not just about fleeing that. It's about pursuing him. And the more you pursue him, the more aggressive you are at pursuing him, his righteousness, his purity, his life, the more you fall in love with Christ, the less you're going to battle. So go after it. You're still going to be tempted. You're still going to struggle. But it's going to be far less than it was 
Understand that's what he's calling you to. Take no steps today about sin, and you're just asking for it. Whatever the Spirit of God brought to your mind, you need to go after it. Letter B. Understand the process of temptation. Again, it starts with desires. It goes to deception of the mind. It issues forth in disobedience, one, two, three. But it needs to be stopped where? In the mind. Get after what you think about and attack it. Take it seriously. You know why you don't take it seriously? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why it's in my own life. Nobody sees up there. Right? Nobody sees what you're thinking except for the Lord. But nobody sees it, so we don't take it seriously. But if we really meant it in our heart of hearts that we want to be all that God wants us to be, we have got to go after our mental process. We have to depend on the Spirit, memorize the Scripture related to your sin battles. Don't take that lightly. Listen, you're going, I'm battling with lust. Well, if you memorize John 11:35, Jesus wept. Hey, that's a great verse. Not going to help you much with lust, right? You need the verses that relate to flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness. You need those passages. Memorize the verses that relate to your sin battles. You cannot stop the desires, but you can stop the deception. You can choose to refuse. You can. In the power of the Spirit, you can say, no, this is what the Lord wants. You could say, no, this is what would please Christ. You could say, no, I will not embrace that desire, that emotion, but react in a manner to those desires that would glorify God. Focus on Philippians 4.8. Dwell upon the truth. Dwell upon purity. Dwell upon excellence and what's worthy of praise. Letter C. Do not embrace the role of the victim. Do not embrace the role of the victim. That's very popular we are having a whole society that every group in our society is trying to out-victimatize themselves above everybody else. And it cannot make its way into the church. It cannot. It will destroy you. It will destroy us. It will destroy your relationship with the Lord. You cannot be the victim. Don't blame your circumstances, your family, your parents, your health, your wealth, your, your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your personality, your appearance. Nothing! Blame nothing, and especially, James says, don't blame who? God. The point of these verses is this. Genuine Christians accept responsibility for their own sin. Do not play the victim. You came to Christ as an admitted sinner. You will grow in Christ as an admitted sinner. Never blame God. Stop blaming others. Recognize God's will. And God's will is really simple. Listen, Romans 6, you are to reckon yourself dead to sin's power in your life. You're to reckon yourself dead. He killed it. We need to live that way, take our stand on that. We need to confess our sins, secondly. That means agree with God that it, it was my fault and you're not responsible and I'm the one who's owning it. You, number three, you need to repent of your sin, which means you're moving away from that, you're pursuing Christ, so you're turning from sin, that repentance of turn, and living that out in your life. And then, lastly, you need to get help from others over your sin. Nowhere does the Bible say that you're to blame others for your sin or hide from your sin. Just the opposite. King David said it this way in Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin before you, I, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Let's be those people. 
And letter D, be moved by your growing awareness of who God is. God is holy. God is perfect. He is righteous. And someday, are you ready for this? Even though you struggle, if you're in Christ and you battle with sin, there will be a day, your death or rapture, when you will be absolutely, perfectly holy forever and never sin again. Can I hear an amen to that? We're looking forward to that day. And understand, we cannot wait to get to heaven the longer we live and have this battle. But understand, understand who God is. Next week, he's going to remind you of his incredible blessings of your life in verse 17. He's going to remind you something I never saw in James before, that he's the one who caused you to be born again. He's the one who gave you salvation. He's the one that caused you to hate sin and love him. He's the one who did it. And we're going to honor him that way. And that's going to motivate us. He's the one who made you holy so you could depend on his spirit and walk in dependent obedience to his word, verse 18. So much so that what's he call you in verse 16? He calls you a beloved brother, a child of God. Do not ever let sin take you down into the depths of discouragement. God is good. God's good gifts, his grace, his redemption, his salvation through Christ, his indwelling Holy Spirit, and his promise to finish what he started in your life should encourage you. It should motivate you to drive you to flee those lusts, stop them in your head, and pursue him and pursue his righteousness. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of this particular passage. Thank you that it encourages us as Christians. And Father, it actually calls the non-Christian to wake up to the reality that we're separated you from sin. And the only way that we're ever going to be right with you is to put our sin on Christ with, by faith and to have his righteousness cover us. And that he died for our sin, he rose from the dead and can provide salvation. And that will happen with no one else and no other name is their salvation. So Father, for the non-Christian here, would you awaken them to their desperate need? And for the Christian here, would you encourage them and challenge them to go after holiness, to go after righteousness, to not be discouraged with their battle when they lose, but to get back up and to continue to flee and pursue and to recognize that those desires, those temptations will come, but Father, that they can in the course of their mind and by empowered by your spirit can make those choices to not go down that road, the road of discouragement, the road of negativity, the road of defiance, the road of disobedience. We pray that you would help us grow to be more like your son. And Father, that you would receive all the glory for what you'll do. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.